Good morning, ladies. Yes, welcome to Rooted, week three. And we're going to jump right in if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our passage for today is verses 12 through 17, but I'm going to start reading this morning from verse 1. I want us to um, keep the passage we're studying today in the context of what we've studied already, okay? So um, we're going to start in verse 1, and here is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And our text for today, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to your word in humility and in hope. We are looking for you to transform us, to do a work in us through your word. I pray you will calm our hearts, limit the distractions. I pray you would give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech as I bring to you these meager five loaves and two fishes. Lord, we look to you to do what you do because you are faithful to your word. I ask this in your name. Amen. 
Okay, last week we saw that Paul, in writing to Timothy to encourage him in the work that he was doing there in guarding the sheep of his congregation, he charged him to confront false teachers and to teach the truth of the word of God rightly. Paul had warned him, even as he knew before he even left Ephesus, that false teachers and other cultural influences were going to come in and pull people away from the truth of the gospel. He knew that some would swerve from the truth. They were distracted from what was important, and that was the truth, the truth of the gospel. And he wrote this letter to Timothy to strengthen him in the work of holding fast to the truth and in preaching and teaching the pure doctrine of God. In our passage for today, Paul draws Timothy's attention to that main focus, to the main point. The main point is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it needs to be our focus as well. There are many things, right, that pull us away to distract us and to disarm us, but we need to pay attention to what is most important, and that is knowing Christ and knowing how we are recipients of the life-changing power of the gospel. So let's look at our passage for today. We're going to start in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So Paul starts out with these words in this section. It kind of seems really personal, right? He's going to use himself as an example of what he's trying to tell Timothy. He's, he's about to share his testimony. He's thankful. He says, I thank him. Who is him? Who is he thanking? Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what does he say about it, about him? He's given me strength. Now, it might seem a little funny, right? He's been talking about the gospel that he was entrusted with, and he was talking about the law, and all of a sudden he mentions strength. I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who's given me strength. But let's think about what Paul had been saying to Timothy earlier. He's writing to encourage him in this work in ministry. He has to hold fast. He has to confront, right? And this is hard. Cherie reminded us last week that this is, this is the area that pastors get and elders get discouraged in. They get weary in. They get frustrated. So here, Paul's trying to encourage Timothy in the work he's doing. And he says, I thank him who has given me strength. I also needed strength. Timothy, you are not alone in this difficult place. And just as Jesus Christ, our Lord, has given me strength, he's going to give you strength as well. And we learned last week in Acts 19 how Paul had come to Ephesus to preach the word, and a revival broke out. People were turning from their sin, right? But a riot also broke out. God had started doing a work in Ephesus, which means that the enemy needed to double his efforts to try and stop that work of God, because there's a war going on. And in Acts 20, we read that Paul warned the elders at the church of Ephesus that fierce wolves will come in to try and destroy the flock. There will be false teachers that arrive even from within their own congregation, this is going to be hard. And when Paul jumped into this letter with no holes barred, he charged Timothy to confront. This 
is hard. Timothy will be tired and weary and discouraged, and he needs to know. Paul understands. Paul knew about hard. He knew about hard. Listen to what he wrote in his uh, letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul knew hard. He also knew strength. In that same letter, he writes this in the next chapter, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knew about strength that comes from the Lord. In his second letter to Timothy, he's in prison when he writes this. He writes this in chapter 4. At my first defense... No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. You know, there's a temptation to fall back on natural means, natural ability, talent, knowledge. Paul knows that this won't work. Right? When things get hard, we try to figure it out ourselves. Timothy in his own flesh, no matter how capable and talented he is, is no match for problems like false teachers and false doctrines. He knows that there is hope only in the one who can transform and uphold the self, flawed as it is. Paul is a prime example of God's transforming power. What God did for Paul, he can certainly do for Timothy. He can certainly do for us. So let's look back at the text. Still in verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I, first, I don't want us to rush over the, the name that he calls Jesus. He says, Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is significant because remember, Paul had been a Pharisee, and Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. They considered him a fraud, right? But since his conversion, Paul fully commits himself to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, or the Anointed One of God. So next, Paul thanks Christ Jesus for considering him trustworthy, is what the NIV uses, and for appointing him to his service. And this is indeed something to be thankful for. Look what he says. He, Christ Jesus appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So this is Paul's description of himself. When somebody asks us to describe ourselves, we don't come up with the worst things that we can think of. But these are Paul's words about himself, blasphemer. And that word alone, it shows that he had violated the first four commandments out of the ten, the first four just in that one word, blasphemer, persecutor. 
Insulin opponent. The NIV uses violent man instead of insulin opponent. I, I read in the commentaries that most commentators think that these descriptive words that Paul uses of himself are really stronger in the original language than they are in English. So generally speaking, Paul was hateful towards Christ and his followers and persecuted them violently, violently. Listen to Acts 26, in which Paul is making a defense of himself before King Agrippa in, in Caesarea. He says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, which is that he tried to force them to deny Christ. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is what Paul dedicated his life to before he met the Savior on the road to Damascus. Now in his letter to Timothy, he can say, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent deponent. Formerly. He is no longer this same man. You know, Paul was on his way to yet another city to drag more Christians to prison when Jesus stopped him in his tracks by shining a bright light on him to, to the degree that he lost his natural eyesight. He went blind. You read the story in Acts chapter 9. Paul had believed that he was doing God a favor by stamping out this sect of heretics. But in that blinding light, Paul's eyes were opened to the truth that Jesus is indeed Lord and Messiah. So Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Faithful. Christ Jesus considered him faithful, trustworthy. It's amazing, really, right? Not only that, but Christ appointed Paul to his own ministry, to his service. This word in the Greek denotes humble service, humble service. Paul wasn't singing his own praises here. He's not touting himself. He didn't call himself the apostle with a capital A. He didn't decide all on his own to become an evangelist and a pastor. Listen to what he wrote in an earlier letter to the Ephesians. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He is truly bowed down in praise and gratitude to his Lord and Savior for the privilege of serving his king, even though he would suffer for his name. Yes, Paul knew hard. He knew suffering, and he knew strength, and he knew humble gratitude for the privilege of serving Christ and his church. Christ Jesus had judged him faithful and appointed him to service, even though he had formerly been an enemy of Christ and of the gospel. 
And Timothy is dealing with those who are opposing the gospel. Paul reminds him that he himself once opposed the gospel, but no longer. And how did this come about? Let's look at the last part of verse 13. It just says, but I received mercy. I received mercy. Paul received mercy. Mercy, simply put, is not getting what is deserved. Mercy is the kind and generous work of God to withhold the righteous punishment that sinful people deserve. Let me say that again. Mercy is the kind and generous work of God to withhold the righteous punishment the sinful people deserve. Paul knew that he deserved punishment. He'd had Christ's followers killed. He deserved death himself. But he was shown mercy instead. Why? He says here, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, why does Paul say this? Does, does he mean that he isn't culpable for the sin and rebellion? No. Paul knows that he deserves judgment for this sin. What he means is that he totally believed he was doing the right thing, right? He was a leader in the church of his day. He was probably the most religious guy that you would find. The Pharisees had sought to put Jesus to death because they considered him a fraud, and this sect of Christ's followers needed to be stopped before more Jews could be drawn away. Paul was convinced that he was acting in truth. We know, and he now knows, he was acting in ignorance, in acting ignorantly in unbelief. He isn't saying that he isn't responsible for his sin, but that sin was not unpardonable. He says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the love and faith that are in Christ Jesus. Paul received mercy, and now he receives grace. Grace, getting what is not deserved, right? This grace overflowed. The word here denotes something being poured out, being poured out in abundance for Paul. Christ Jesus appointed him to his own service. Just think of it. This man that was formerly against him, instead of death, which was deserved, Paul received life. He received a new heart, which was not deserved. And not only grace, but faith and love as well. So faith, he had acted previously in unbelief. Now Christ gives him faith, faith and love. He had been hateful towards Christians, right? He was killing them. He hated Christ. And now he has received love, love for God and love for others. This is the goodness of God in all its glory. There's no other way to put it. Let's move on to verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I'm going to stop right there. This is the first of five trustworthy statements that Paul includes in his pastoral letters. There are three in 1 Timothy, one in 2 Timothy, and one in Titus. This saying is trustworthy. So this is like in our modern day verbiage, we might say, hey, listen up. This is really super important. And, and you're going to want to know this. And remember that this letter, though personal, was not private. These words were intended not just for Timothy, but for the church as well. 
and even for us today. This saying is trustworthy, and this saying is deserving of full acceptance. Now, why does Paul include that? Well, we have to go back and, and look at the earlier part of the letter where he was telling him, you know, to confront these false teachers. And in that same message, what he's saying to the congregation is you need to stop listening to those persons who were leading the way off into myths and endless genealogies and vain discussions. But this, this right here, these words that I'm about to say, now these words are deserving of full acceptance. These are the words to listen to. These are the words to focus on and build your foundation on. And what are these words? Look back at the text. The words are that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And the NIV uses the word worst, of whom I am the worst. Ladies, this is the gospel in a nutshell. If somebody asks you what the gospel is, you could just read this verse, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus, Messiah, sent by the Father, emptied himself and came into the world, taking on human flesh, born of a woman, born in a lowly stable for the supreme purpose of saving sinners. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ, right? We think of him as coming into the world as a little baby and born in a stable. But do we remind ourselves that the reason why he came wasn't so we would have a reason to have a holiday in December, but to die on the cross in order to save us? And what did he come to save us from? We have to ask that question. This word save has broad connotations, but the important aspect is rescue from divine wrath. Listen to Revelation 6, passage there where the Apostle John had been given a glimpse into those end days. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Indeed, who can stand? Is there any hope for any of us in the day of God's wrath? Well, Paul says that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Listen to what he wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And don't just take Paul's words into account. Listen to what Jesus says in uh, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world because they were already condemned. We are already condemned. 
Later in verse 36 of that same chapter, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Christ Jesus came in the world to, into the world to save, to rescue. And let's think too, in, in the Old Testament, right, in Ezekiel chapter 34, the Old Testament gives this description of God himself. This is what he says, lest we think that the rescue and the saving is only in the New Testament. He says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue. Later he says, I myself will be their shepherd the shepherd of my sheep, I will seek the lost. And we know Jesus in John 10, calls, he is called the good shepherd. So Jesus Christ came into the world to save, to rescue, rescue from God's wrath and from eternal death. But who did he come to save? Sinners. Well, what's a sinner? In the most general sense, a sinner is a person who commits sin. The Greek term translated sinner in the Bible carries the idea of a person who misses the mark, like an archer who misses his target. Thus, a sinner is one who misses God's mark. Ordinarily, we think of a sinner as someone who is severely immoral or evil or wicked, right? But the Bible tells us that every person is a sinner. And Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all Miss the mark. Through Adam's original act of disobedience, all human beings inherited a sinful nature and were credited with the guilt of Adam's sin. Only Jesus Christ was sinless. He's the only one. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In theological terms, it's correct to understand the word sinner not as a moralistic de designation or a judgment, but rather as a relational word, because everyone who is separated from God through sin is a sinner. Sinner defines the broken state of one's relationship with God, right? Sinners face the judgment of God. In Jude, um, verses 14 and 15, that writer wrote this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such ungodly ways and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Sinners are on the road to death and destruction, but there is hope. There is hope for sinners. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, uh, the Apostle John wrote in his letter. To propitiate means to satisfy the wrath of God against sin, to turn away God's wrath, or to offer sacrifice that appeases God's just judgment and righteous anger against us and our sin. And note, Jesus isn't simply the propitiator. He is the propitiation. He is 
what satisfies the justice of God. He is the sacrifice that God required. He stood condemned in our place. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like Paul, sinners like you, sinners like me. And we know what Paul had been, right? He calls himself here in in the passage the foremost. He was formerly an enemy of God, dedicated to the destruction of Christ's followers. He was violent and despised these Christians. He was blind in his sin. He wasn't just on the road to Damascus. He was on the road to hell, to eternal death and separation from God. And glance back at that list earlier in the passage in verses 9 and 10, this list of sins that Paul wrote. He says, I know this list. And I know that everyone will find themselves somewhere in that list. But me? He says, I am the foremost. I am the worst of them all. And Paul doesn't say, I was the foremost. He says, I am the foremost. This is written in the present tense. In other words, yes, I was this awful, violent, hateful man who was an enemy of the gospel, but mercy and grace came in and saved me and cleansed me and made me a new man, but I am still the worst of sinners. So how can he say that? Well, he recognizes his naturally sinful state. Listen to what he wrote to his, uh, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 7. I'm reading this in the New Living Translation. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Do you wonder why it is that we still struggle with sin? This is why. Our sinful nature continues to reside with us. And until we are completely transformed in that moment when we meet our Lord and Savior face to face, we will always have this war within us. But this knowledge of our sinful, natural sinful state keeps us humble. It kept Paul humble. He hasn't forgotten who he once was. And he was broken over his sin. Do you ever remind yourself of who you were? Of who you were before Christ found you and redeemed you? We need to remember. We do need to remember. We need to humble ourselves before God and continually express our gratitude for his salvation to us. So unless we think that God could never forgive us of the sins that we've committed, unless we think that no one knows what we've done or what we're really like, Lest we think we have committed the unpardonable sin, Paul says of all the sinners, he is the worst. And even though Paul's the worst, what did he receive? Mercy. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe 
in him for eternal life. Paul says, when Jesus found me on that road to Damascus, I deserved judgment. I did. I'm the worst of sinners. But he gave mercy. And the way Paul worded this, that he received mercy, shows us that this is not something Paul could have done for himself. He couldn't do it. And none of us can do it. We cannot save ourselves. God did this. And Paul was the recipient. And Paul tells us the reason why God poured out his mercy and grace on him. Look at it again. We're in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul explains that the reason why God decided to show his mercy to this man who was a known enemy of Christ Jesus who describes himself as the foremost of sinners, was so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe, so that he, Paul, might be an example to show the patience of God, because God is patient. He is patient. Consider these passages. In Exodus 34, God said of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is patient. And in the book of Jonah, now Jonah was a prophet that God had sent to a very wicked city to proclaim the gospel. And he didn't want to go. He went the other direction, but then God, you know, with the help of a whale, turned him around and he went into the city and he preached the gospel. And those people repented. But Jonah was not happy. In chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah complains about how patient God is. He says, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, the other direction. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God is gracious. He is merciful and he is patient. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter wrote this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He is patient with us so that we will repent of our sin. But we have to know that that patience doesn't last forever. Think of the flood. He judged the entire world except for one family because of sin. Or the exile of Israel. Though he had told them exactly how to walk in his ways, they turned away from him and worshipped idols, and God sent them into exile. His patience doesn't last forever. He is a patient God, perfectly patient, perfectly patient. But if you haven't confessed Christ yet, then he is being patient with you right now. You are hearing the gospel. You're studying the gospel in his word. You are hearing that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But you know, we never know when that patience will end. We never know if we'll have tomorrow. We don't know if we'll have this afternoon. The call here is to see the example of Paul and to fall upon the mercy of God. If you don't turn to Christ, then this example is meaningless. 
Paul was shown mercy to be an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul was the worst of sinners. Worst of sinners. His example says to us that if Christ Jesus could save Paul, then he can save me. He can save you. And look at what those who believe are saved to. They are saved to eternal life in contrast to eternal death, which is what every one of us deserves, but rather saved to eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then Paul breaks away from his testimony and goes right into worship of this one who has rescued him from the domain of darkness. Let's look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a doxology. A doxology is a Greek word that is made up of two words. There's the word doxa, which means honor or glory, and the word logia, which means language or speak. So doxology means glory speak. So doxology is talking about and speaking about God's glory. And Paul cannot help himself but to worship his king and savior by speaking his glory. And I, I think I have to imagine that Paul is a little excited here. He's more excited than we give him credit for when we're reading through the passage, right? But he knows how vile he was. He calls himself the worst of sinners. You know, we have a tendency to not think so badly of our sin, so much of our sin. We have a lesser view of our sin. We, we think we're not that bad. Paul shows us through this passage how we ought to view our sin. When he thinks of who he was and who he still is, and he thinks of what Christ has done, he cannot help but speak of his glory. So let's look closer at this doxology. We'll take it a word by word. To the king of the ages, Christ Jesus is the king of the ages. The king. Kings have authority. This king is the only one who has the authority to verify this good word, this trusted word that he came to save sinners. And he's not just the king. He's the king of the ages. He is king from beginning and his reign will not end. So this promise of eternal life it won't die with him, as he won't die, because he's immortal. The word immortal means living forever, never dying or decaying. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He is invisible. You cannot see him with your physical eyes. You cannot look at another person on this earth and see God. And the reason why we can't see him is because he, has no, he is a spiritual being with no body or face or physical form. God is said to be the one who alone possesses unapproachable light who no man has seen or can see. We read about, about seeing him who is unseen, in, in the letter to the Hebrews, we see him who is unseen with our spiritual eyes. So how do we know what God looks like? We look 
to Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, Paul reminds us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And again, he wrote, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It is in the face of Jesus that we can know God. The only one on this earth who ever looked like God is Jesus. And we see him today in Scripture and in Scripture alone. We need to be really careful about trying to see him in pictures and books and TV screens. Remember that Scripture is where you see the true Jesus. All other human attempts at trying to convey what Jesus looked like or what he was like are just that, human attempts. It will be limited. It will be limited. This is where we see the truth of who Jesus is. And it says that he is the only God. First of all, this tells us that Jesus is God. Remember that in Paul's old life, they didn't believe, he didn't believe that Jesus was God. The Pharisees believed him to be a fraud. It was blasphemous in their minds that Jesus would claim to be God or equal with God. That's why they sought to kill him. But here Paul confesses that Jesus is God, and not just God, the only God. Because that city of Ephesus, they were steeped in idolatry there. They worshipped many gods. Jesus is the only God. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Acts 4.12. So Paul's doxology is his response to his own salvation, to Christ, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Be honor and glory. Christ alone is due this worship. Listen to these words from Revelation 5. This is a scene from the throne room of heaven that the Apostle John was given a glimpse into. Starting in verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Right there, that's our gospel. He was slain, and by your blood you, were rans- you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And this worship goes on forever and ever. And Paul ends ends it with those words, forever and ever, amen. The word amen means may it be so. And it will be so. And that doesn't depend on us. That's not determined by us. It will be so. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in submission to Christ. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess and openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord 
He is that sovereign God to the glory of God the Father. As sinners, we all miss the mark. We all miss the mark. We all stand guilty as charged. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. From 1 John 1.8. Sin, rebellion against God, disobedience, the violation of God's law, must be punished. And sinners cannot pay the penalty of sin without perishing because the punishment required is death. Only Jesus Christ's sinless, spotless perfection hits the mark, the divine mark. Christ made the full payment for our sin. Through his death on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's justice, perfectly vindicating and freeing from condemnation all sinners who receive him by faith. If you are not under Christ, you are under God's wrath. There is no one who has sinned too much to receive God's mercy. But you are not good enough to get yourself into heaven, and you are not good enough to keep yourself out of hell. If you haven't yet fallen on the mercy of God for your salvation, I urge you to do so today. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save me, to save you. Each of us is the worst sinner. We see ourselves in Paul. He's an example. Each one of us is guilty before God. We stand condemned unless we put our faith and trust in the one who stood condemned in our place. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves. And I urge you to do so today. I want to read the words of a beloved hymn. The title is Beneath the Cross of Jesus. This is the second verse. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Ladies, this is the main point. This is the main point of our faith. This is the main point of our Christian walk. It is foundational. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled before you to think about the wondrous love that would redeem us as unworthy as we are is just more than words can even describe. I pray that you will take this, apply it to each of our hearts, and may we know that we belong to you, but only through the mercy and grace that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. And in your precious name I pray, amen.